Good to see you. Uh, hey, we are in week two of our Advent series, and I, I noticed something about uh, my house this week. We got a lot of snow uh, where we we're at. We got like nine inches, and, and it was crazy to drive just a few miles down the road to here, and a dusting, it wasn't fair. Uh, we got like nine inches and a loss of power for a day, which was awesome. Yeah, it was really fun. You should all try it. Uh, but good snowman, a lot of snow fights. And then to top it all off, we got hit with that flu thing going around. Yeah, so we had the snow in, no power, no internet. And so like when the kids are sick, we, the shows are rampant. We just let them do it. And, uh, and so then they can't get on the internet. And we're like, oh boy, that means we have to engage with them. <sighs> Great. So anyways, that's been our week. But I've noticed something with, with my two boys. Uh, FedEx and UPS and all of the Amazon book, uh, all the Amazon deliveries come with these cardboard things called boxes. You ever seen them? And uh, I'd like to open them up and get what's out of them and then collapse them and then put them in recycle where they belong and then use them off. You'll send them away. However, my sons catch wind that there is a box that is there and it is empty and it is large and they can crawl inside of it. And they like to make it whatever it is they dream of. And so the thought of getting rid of a box is like heresy to them. Dad, what are you doing with that box? I'm, I'm flattening it. Uh, we don't have anything that we can put in it. We don't need to put anything in it. No, it's a spaceship. Pretty sure it's a box, buddy. Nope, if I cut a hole here and I, and, I, and I make an opening here and I use duct tape, it has to be duct tape. I don't know where he learned that at such a young age, but it's great. Uh, I, there is a rocket ship there. And then it's like, okay, you could do this. And then the next morning, I'm like, maybe he's over it. And so I go to clean up the, the, the front room a little bit, get some of these boxes out of the way. And then Caleb comes out and says, Dad, don't throw it away. It's a Lamborghini. That's how he says it. He says it like Arnold Schwarzenegger, Lamborghini. It's a Lamborghini, Dad. You can't. You, we put it on that side. It, it's, a, it's a car. And then what you see is uh, Caleb or Judah will be pushing each other in the cardboard box across the kitchen, going as fast as they can, as fast as a Lamborghini. And then once that's away, it's like, okay, maybe he's done with this. Maybe I can put it away. The Lamborghini dealer is over with. It becomes a fort. They've been watching HGTV. I don't know who's watching HGTV in my house. Uh, it's me. Uh, but they're, they've got the open concept fort, and they're like, and it's impressive. The other day, Judah drew uh, blueprints. He didn't know they were blueprints, but he had a whole plan of this is where we enter, and it's all on this paper. And I looked at him and went, no, it actually makes sense. Well done. Uh, he's doing a good job. But I, I've learned that I can't recycle these boxes that have so much potential. Uh, the, these things that I thought were garbage, these things that I thought were trash, the things that just get in my way, they look at it and they see possibility. And I couldn't help but notice, especially as we're going through uh, the names that are in, in, in Jesus' family line, uh, there's a lot of names there that if you or I were to look at them and, and, and maybe look back into uh, where they are in the scripture, we would think, oh, it's just a there's no way that this name, if you're reading through the Bible from cover to cover, uh, there's no way that this name is going to add up to anything. It's just trash. Why, why would this person ever be included? And then you get to Matthew and you're like, oh, this, this name does mean something. It's in the line of Jesus. This name is important and I thought it was just recyclable goods. I didn't even think anything about it. You see, my boys and Jesus have a lot in common, or God have a lot in common. 
They can take the things that we thought were unusable and come up with some pretty interesting tasks for them. And and God's been doing this for a while. Jesus did the same thing with Peter. He took a guy who was a fisherman out out on his luck, a bad fisherman at that, and said, you're going to start the church. He takes a guy named Paul named Saul at first and says, you're, you were going to kill all our Christians. Now you're going to become the most prolific one to date. And then he, he, God had a way of doing this. He took Moses, who was dismissed for murder and, and hiding on the far side of the desert, and makes him a leader of the people. All these boxes that, that didn't make much sense, that, that should have been thrown away on the recycle heap of history, find, their, them, find themselves in the story of God being used in mighty ways that we, we would never expect it. And so today, uh, when we come to this list of names, we see that God's got a knack of seeing uh, potential in piles of boxes. Uh, it comes even more to light as we continue. Last week, we talked about Tamar. And how she had a a life where she was a victim. Everything happened to her. And then God entered the story and she had a breakthrough moment with her son. And she was taken care of. And then Tamar is a very unlikely person to find in the genealogy of Jesus. She's only mentioned in two sentences. Or in one chapter of the entire Bible. Today we come to someone who is just as shocking. Uh, This name doesn't really make sense and we look at it. It's the name of Rahab. And Matthew selects these names, and he says this in Matthew 1.4. Uh, Ram, the father of Amadab. The thing is with Bible names, you just say it confidently. <laughs> and everyone else goes, oh, that's how you say it. And you're like, yeah. But Amadab, the father of Nashon, I just gave you my secrets, so now you're like, oh, he doesn't know what he's doing. Sometimes I do. The father of Salmon, 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 the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab. Uh, her, if you know the story, you know what she, who she is. She doesn't take up a lot of space in the scripture, and most of these names don't, uh, but she's a pivotal one. The book of Joshua is where we meet her, and the book of Joshua opens up with this line, Moses, my servant, is dead. Joshua, you're in charge. And the reason this is significant is Moses had passed away, and now that Moses is gone, Joshua's in charge, and Joshua's task was to take the people of Israel from the desert, cross the Jordan, into the promised land. And God says to Moses, or God says to Joshua, Moses is gone, it's your turn to lead, and and Joshua's scared. And then there's that famous verse in Joshua 1 that says, be strong and courageous, I'm with you. Uh, I'm going to go with you through this, there's no reason for you to be afraid, that's Brad's version. And so Joshua goes, you're right, and we're going to do it. And so Joshua takes the people across the Jordan. And then they're getting ready to fight a battle in Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua does what normal people do on the banks of the Jordan, getting ready to go across. They're going to fight a battle. There's going to be a war. He decides, you know what? We should send some spies. This is normal. Uh, When our nation goes to war, we send spies. The CIA goes in there or the special forces go in and they scope out the land. And this is what Joshua does. And in chapter 2, then Joshua, son of Nun, there's a dad joke right there. Uh, in case you guys want to come back to it, we're, we're going to let it go away. Okay. Secretly sent two spies from Shittim. You want to say that with me? No. <laughs> it's the only time you can say it in church. Come on. No. Okay. Uh, it means acacia wood, in case you want to know that places where the uh, acacias grew. Shita is how you say it in Hebrew. It's translated there, but that's a fun one. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. 
So they went and they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab. Okay, so you have spies. Now think that you were watching a Jason Bourne movie or Jack Ryan or some spy movie that's out, okay? This is what happens. Where do spies go in order to gain the lay of the land? Where's a good place? You go to a bar, right? You go to a tavern. Uh, You go to a place where people drink a little bit too much, where they could say a little bit too much, and you start to listen. This is what they do. They go to Rahab's place. Rahab ran probably a tavern, and taverns in those days, like taverns in the Wild West movies, had special accommodations of prostitutes there. So this is where they go to learn what's going on in Jericho. Jericho had roughly about 2,000 people in there. It was protected by an elaborate system of the walls. There was inner walls and there was outer walls. Uh, Historians believe that Rahab's tavern was built into one of the outer walls. And so it was easy for them to get to. And if you want to know who goes in and out of the city, you go there. You go to the bar and the tavern and you start to listen. And who knows who comes in there? Soldiers? Guards, high officials come in there and they start talking and they start listening. Now, the, the Old Testament is interesting in, in, in here and it, it kind of tries to sanitize a little bit of what Rahab does, but it doesn't sanitize what she actually is. She's a prostitute. Five times she's called a prostitute. And if it's even, uh, a, it's, once would be enough, right? But instead of sanitizing the story, the Bible highlights it. In Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11 is this name after name of uh, important people in the faith, people like Abraham. In Hebrews 11, it says, by faith, the prostitute Rahab welcomed the spies and was not killed with those who were disobedient. You would think that thousands of years later, they could just drop the prostitute part, right? No, it's still there. She's the prostitute Rahab. Some translations might say the word harlot. There's no explanation for what she does. There's, there's no uh, uh, sanitizing of it. There's no hiding it. Her history is part of her story. And so the, the spies come to her house, and the Hebrew spies tried to blend in, but the Hebrew people coming off of 40 years wandering in the wilderness kind of stood out against the people of Jericho who were living there all the time. And so they're not going to stay secret. They go into her house and listen and they, and they start picking up information. Well, the people of Jericho noticed that they were coming, and they heard that the, the Hebrews were coming in, and so they're on the lookout for the spies, and the spies are on the lookout for everybody else, everybody else, and so the king dispatches a bunch of people and says, hey, look, there's spies coming. The Hebrew people are coming. Let's be ready for them. Let's watch out for their spies, and so he sends a bunch of guards to Rahab's area the red light district, and he sends them in there uh, uh, with, uh, he goes into this, I, I picture it like Vegas, right? What happens in Rahab's neighborhood stays in Rahab's neighborhood, but the guards need to know what's happening. And so they walk in there and they're trying to get information. And they say, uh, in verse three, the king of Jericho sent spies to, sent soldiers to, uh, sent the message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. And then she responds, so they're pounding on the door, right? Who's here? Send them out. And she responds in this. She says, yes, those men came. But I didn't know who they were or where they come from. At dusk, when the time for the gates closed, they left. I don't know which way they went. If you go after them now, maybe you can catch up with them. It's kind of spy movie-esque, right? She's, I see her standing at the door. She looks both ways. I don't know which way they went. 
I think they went that way. And so the guards, because in these kind of movies, the guards are always bad shots and they're kind of gullible. And so they take off running. Meanwhile, what's Rahab do with the spies? They're still inside. Before the men lay down that night, uh, she had put them up on the roof and covered them with flax, which was the type of roofing that they had. And she covered them, and the flax were like these four-foot-tall, I guess four feet's like right there, uh, four-foot-tall things of long weeds, and they would pile them on their roofs, and it would keep moisture out, it would keep heat in. And so she puts them on the roof and then throws a bunch of the roof over them so they blend in. The roofs were bumpy. And so they, they had no idea. And perhaps she had done this before, and it worked last time, so this is a perfect place to hide somebody. And so she's hiding them, and then she goes back up to the roof after the guards go away. And the spies, before they went to sleep that night, she goes back up. And now if you notice something about the text real quick, who's the active one in this whole story? Rahab. She's the one doing the work. She's the one that's acting on what she will come to find out what she knows. What are the spies doing? They're drinking at a bar. They're laying down on the roof. Uh, we could be certain that, uh, we could be fairly certain that the spies weren't there for the prostitution. Uh, military people from the Hebrew soldiers would have sworn celibacy during a time of battle, and this is a time of battle. So they weren't, they were there purely as a fact finding mission. So they're not doing much, they're just watching. So before the spies went down for the night, she went up to the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land, and that great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting with fear because of you. Everyone in this town is melting in fear. She's basically saying, everyone's on edge. We're popping Xanax like it's a Tic Tac. We are scared of you. Everybody is scared of you. And it's pretty stunning if you think about it for the spies. Here they are, so afraid that that God might not give them Jericho. Jericho's this mighty town with the big walls. I mean, the song was written about it. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. Dylan refuses to play it. Probably doesn't know it. It's too, it's too old for him, probably. But, it's, it's, uh, but he's, they're afraid. The people of Israel are afraid. The last time they sent spies into the promised land, they sent 12 of them. Ten were bad and two were good. One of the good ones was Joshua, and now he's in charge. His right-hand man, Caleb, was the other one that was good. They're the ones that said, we should go take the land. And the other ten convinced the whole tribe of Israel, no, that's why they've been wandering around for 40 years. And here they are again, and they're sending spies in there. Joshua knew it was there, but the nervousness of Joshua to send some people. And here's Rahab. She lives here. And she goes, we're afraid. This land is yours. She has more faith than the spies do and less reason for faith than the spies do. Look closely what she says. I know that the Lord has given you this land. She knew for a fact the same thing that Israel should have been certain of. Rahab says this this land is yours. The spies are with the posture of, are you sure? We're not sure. That's why we're here. That, that, this is our history. We're, we're doubting what God was doing. And then she knows about their God. She doesn't just know about this army. She knows about the God. She says, uh, and, and we know that this God has given you this land. 
according to Rahab, Yahweh is bigger than any of their gods, and they had a lot of them. In the ancient Near East, the the worth and the power of your God was based on how strong and how terrifying your God could be. The more powerful your God, the more angry your God, the more violent your God, the better your God was. And so in Rahab's theology, the stronger deity gets worshipped. When a country lost in battle, it wasn't that they were outflanked or outmaneuvered or outgunned or speared at this time. Uh, It was because their God was weaker and the other people's God was stronger. And so she's saying, your God is the strong God. And she's actually confessing to the Hebrew spies that Yahweh is the most powerful God. Rahab refers to this type of warfare that the Hebrews did. It was called Haram, which was this total destruction. Go into this town and wipe it all out. It was a language of power. And in that culture, that language was pretty much when it destroyed everything was a megaphone. Now, is this an accurate interpretation of God? Absolutely not. There's a lot of confusion when you read through stories. When you read through the book of Joshua and you see God saying, go destroy everything. And then you come to Jesus and you're like, how do these two match up? It's confusing, rightfully so. But you have to understand the language of that time was violence and God is entering history in their time speaking their language and how do you prove that you're a God worth anything is through might and power. Did Rahab know that that God is actually defined through the person of Jesus as Hebrews says that God is love and in, in Christ we see a perfect image of God the Father. She didn't know that, it wasn't written yet. All she knew is this God was more powerful. This God was more strong. So this God deserved to be followed. And Yahweh had it all, and she was right. And she responds to the things that she heard with the only step of faith that she knew how, and the only one that she could muster. And her response was to put her life at risk and lie to the king of Jericho. So right there, we see her decision. Am I going to follow the king of Jericho or am I going to follow God who is the most powerful person? She decides, I'm not going to go along with him. I'm going to go along with Yahweh. And then she keeps talking. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, Og's an easy one, and and the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, Our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. In verse 9, she says this phrase, the Lord has given you the land. In verse 10, it says the Lord has dried up the river. There are a couple of elements that goes on here. First, uh, she's a Canaanite. She's a prostitute. She's the town madam. Uh, She's not the typical type of person to be talking like this. Yet here she is. She's talking this way. And then she says this phrase, our hearts melted and our courage failed. It sounds quite poetic, right? It sounds like a writer or a songwriter might be saying this, which is a good assumption. These concepts of terror and the words that she says were actual songs that were sung by the people of Israel after they crossed the River Jordan. In Exodus 15, Uh, Moses and his sister Miriam write a song and it says in verse 15, the chiefs of Edom will be terrified and the leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them by the power of your arm. They will be as still as stone until until your people pass by. 
Lord, until your people you brought pass by. She's singing their songs, essentially. How on earth would she hear this song? She knows their, their music. She heard what God had been done. Maybe someone came in and they heard the song somewhere where the, the Hebrews were camping. Maybe it was a catchy tune. Maybe it was like the Mbop song or whatever Taylor Swift has out right now. It was a catchy tune and she, it was stuck in her head and she was singing it. She knew it. She picked it up. It makes us think a little bit, uh, what songs do we sing about our God that people pick up from our normal lives? But that's a different day to talk about. Something she learned came from someone who came into her bar or somewhere and she picked up that the God of Israel is here and she picked up the lyrics and we were melting away in fear. It wasn't just the song that caused her to dig into her faith or dig in, but she names God. She's listened to their music. She's made a decision. And now she doesn't just name God like we would say God. She uses God's actual name, the name he gives Moses. So far in the book of Joshua, only Joshua has used the name. It's the name Yahweh. Joshua used in Joshua 1, he says, Yahweh has led us here. It was a very rare name to use. They didn't like to just throw that one out. They had other names for God. Elohim, El Shaddai, El Elyon. They had a bunch of them, just El sometimes. She doesn't name the corporate uses of God. She names God's personal name. The name that comes at the burning bush with Moses and, and, and the name that says, who shall I say has sent me? And God looks at Moses and says, tell him Yahweh has sent me. The name that denotes friendship, the name that denotes closeness, the name that means I'm here to rescue, the name that, here, that says I'm closer than you think. Uh, when you look in your Bible, sometimes your Bibles will capitalize the name Lord, all caps. That's the word Yahweh. And this is the name that Rahab uses. She might not know the intricate details of faith. She doesn't know the Mosaic law, which was what was established at Sinai 40 years prior. She doesn't know that or else she wouldn't be doing the line of work that she's doing now. But she knows that this God is powerful and she knows God's name. And that's all she needs. She might have stunned the spies. First, they, they weren't expecting uh, people in, in Jericho to be afraid of them. That, that's a shock. And second, they never expected to find a faith like this living in a brothel. Rahab found God, or, or better yet, God somehow found Rahab. He spotted her tender heart somewhere in that locked down hard city and reached out to save her. We don't know where she first heard all of this, but somehow she did. She had nothing to lose. She was at the bottom of, the life's, of life's rungs. She was already lost her, her reputation. Her social standing was not very high. She had zero chance of life or career advancement. She was at the bottom of the pit, and God found her right there. Perhaps now, sometime in your life, you have felt like you're in the same place. Same place as Rahab. Might not sell your body, but perhaps you've sold your allegiance. Perhaps you've sold your affection. Perhaps you've sold your attention, maybe your talents. Maybe we've sold out. We, we've all sold out at some point in our lives. We've all done it. We've all wondered, and, and we've all wondered whether God's glory days are ever going to come for us. Perhaps it'll come for them, or, or you, or you, or him, or her. But will it ever come for us? And so we doubt. 
we're too soiled, we're too dirty, uh, we're too afflicted, we've sinned too much, we've stumbled too often and limped along for far too long. We think that we're like the boxes in my house, we're in the garbage heap of society. No glory days will ever come for us, just flatten us down, cut us down, take the tape off, throw it in the recycle bin. This is where we put ourselves. This is where Rahab put herself. And for those of us who think that that's where we are in our, in our life, in our world, God has one name for you, Rahab. That's why she's here. The promised land was where the Israelites were going, where the Hebrews were marching. And it's strategic where, where the story of Rahab is. It's right at the beginning of the promised land. This is where they were going. Rahab's right in the front of the book and she gets the entire second chapter Moses is dead. Go take the promised land. But first, I need you to get Rahab. She shows up again in chapter 6. We don't know how long later, but this is when the walls came down. In the Bible, she's mentioned four more times, but in all of her count, she gets more mentioned than the spies. She gets more mentioned than the priests who crossed the Jordan and made everything stop. She gets more mentioned than Caleb, Joshua's right-hand man. If the chronology of the ti- her time and, and maybe the timing of her story has anything to do with theology, it says this, God has a place for us Rahabs in the world. God has a place for you and I in his story, and this is why she's mentioned in Jesus' story. Not only in the, in the names, where, where we see over here, I believe she's on this board, not only in that one, not only in your scripture, but the people like Rahab show up all through scripture. In Luke 7, Jesus is talking, uh, he's been invited to a, a, a Pharisee's house. His name's Pharisee's name is Simon, and Simon wants to trap Jesus, or perhaps he's curious about Jesus. We don't really know. Jesus is over there for dinner. That's, that's the basics of the story. And as they're eating and, and drinking their food, uh, uh, this woman shows up, and we don't know anything about this woman. It says that she's of ill repute. Some translations say she was a prostitute. We don't know. She didn't have a great reputation. She was probably a lot like Rahab. You might know the story. Perhaps you've read Luke 7 before and you know what's happening. She comes in and she begins to wash Jesus' feet. And because of her reputation, whether she did for work, Simon the Pharisee, who was like supposed to be the best of society, is looking at what's happening and he starts freaking out. How on earth are you going to let this woman wash your feet? Jesus, I thought you were a good person. And yet this prostitute, this woman of ill repute, or however they would say it back then, is touching you, and you're letting her. And then this woman keeps washing her feet. I wish we would have gotten her name. We don't. Perhaps it was Rahab. Maybe that was a common name for people in that line of work. I don't know. But here she is washing Jesus' feet, anointing them with oil, wiping them down with her hair, putting perfume on them. And then in Luke 7, 47, Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, he's talking back to Simon who's confronted Jesus. Her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has been shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this that forgives sins? Jesus said to the women, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
these stories about Jesus meeting the folks on the trash heap of life and bringing them to relationship with him and saying, your sins are forgiven. This woman was on the margins of life, but she was given grace. When no one else stood a chance, Jesus gave her the chance of a lifetime. He came for people like her. Jesus came for the Rahabs of our world. You could say that the Hebrew spies were actually missionaries meant to go find Rahab. Uh, they thought they were on a reconnaissance trip. I, I, I don't think they were. God didn't need a, a, a script. God didn't need spies. He didn't need a scouting report. His plan was always to collapse the walls like a stack of dominoes. He didn't send men to collect the data. I think God needed Rahab. He saw her and he sent the spies to go get her. Later in Joshua 2, uh, they told her as they worked out a deal saying, you hit us, we're going to take care of you, you're not going to get killed. And and so they told her to hang a crimson cord out her window so when when the walls came down and when they, they took the city, they would leave her and her family safe. And she did it without hesitation. And when the battle came, the walls fell, everyone else perished, Rahab and her family were saved. Joshua says in in chapter 6, go get Rahab. Go get her. Bring her out. She's safe. By faith, Hebrews 11.31 says, Rahab the prostitute did not perish. Her profession of faith mattered more than her profession in life. Maybe your past is a checkered one. Maybe your peers don't share your faith. Uh, Maybe your pedigree is one of violence. Maybe your family line is a bit embarrassing. If so, Rahab's your model. uh, Thinking through this this past week about being snowed in, I was wondering if if I've ever been like Rahab where I thought I was washed out, and I have. There was a time when, when I thought that perhaps I had done too much back in the old days, you know, the 90s. Uh, maybe I sinned too much. Maybe the addiction to pornography went on too long. Maybe I treated people poorly. Maybe I had sinned to the point where God's like, I can't use you anymore. I had words and echoes of a bad theologians saying stories in the Bible that weren't really there about how God moves on from people who sin once. And that's not true. My friend pulled me aside in this time and I was kind of telling him what was going on. I said, I think I'm just kind of disqualified and benched. And he showed me a list in the Bible. He, he knew I liked the Old Testament. So he just goes through. Look how many people God used despite their past. Abraham lied. Moses killed a dude. David killed a guy and then slept or slept with his wife, got her pregnant, and then killed him to cover his tracks. Didn't work. We'll learn about Bathsheba in a couple weeks. And then you move on to the Old Testament. Peter denied Jesus. The woman at the well had five husbands, and the one she was sleeping with at that time was not hers. It was somebody else's husband, which is another risque thing that we skip over there. Called a tax collector to be his disciple. He called a zealot who wanted to kill Rome to be his disciple. He took a murderer and made him one of the most prolific writers. He takes all of these people who have all of these bad pasts and say, I can still use you. And he took Rahab, a prostitute, who somehow God met in a city that was completely anti-God and wove his crimson cord through her life and brought redemption. She married a man named Salmon. Solomon, I don't know how it's pronounced. Looks like Salmon, sounds delicious. That's his name. Together they had a son named Boaz. 
Boaz married a woman named Ruth, who we'll talk about in two weeks. Ruth had a son who had another son who had a, a, another son named David. David was the king of Israel. David had a son who had a son who had a grandson who had a great-grandson, then a great-great-great-great-grandson whose name was Jesus. We don't drop crimson cords from our windows anymore. We don't, we don't do that. We're not in that kind of world. God has changed the way he deals with us. But we trust the crimson cord of Jesus' promise to our broken stories. And we hope that that redemption in the cord will bind up the areas of brokenness and bring the grace that you and I are starving for. We might think that our lives are just chunky cardboard boxes on the trash heap of our, of our life. No use for anymore. Just for holding junk but Jesus sees more than us. He sees our life, our cardboard box called you and I, and says, I see a Lamborghini. <laughs> I see a spaceship. If you cut the circles right, Dad, I can, I can use this as a spaceship, and perhaps it'll take off. He doesn't see our hang-ups and our pasts. He sees our possibilities. When he takes these boxes and makes these breathtaking sculptures of faith, perhaps that's what you need to know today. Perhaps we can enter Advent or continue marching towards this time where we look at Jesus and his birth and say, this is why he came, to offer me that kind of hope that I'm not washed out anymore. God still has a use for you if you let him. So today, I don't know what the cardboard box of your faith looks like. I don't know what your past is. I know there's hurt. I know there's shame and guilt. And sometimes that keeps us away from Christ. It keeps us from entering a relationship. There's no way I could be used. I felt that. And Jesus goes, ah, have you heard of my friend Rahab? Found faith where she shouldn't have. Doing a profession that she shouldn't have been doing. And I used her. Not only did I use her, I put her in the line of my son. She's part of the family. And you can be too. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this invitation of Rahab, that she's part of your story and we can be part of your story as well. No matter what we've done, no matter what we've said, no matter who we've said those things to, we can still be a part of what you're doing in our life. We're not used up, we're not thrown aside, we're not somebody else's trash waiting for the garbage man to come pick us up. No. You've looked at us. You said you loved us. You died for us. You rose for us. And then you said, I'm going to give you something that's going to work on you and I'm going to keep on working on you and I won't quit. So Lord, help us not to quit. You began this work and you'll finish it. And God, as perhaps Rahab looked for the spies every day to come and rescue or may we look out the windows of our life and say, Lord, would you come rescue us? Would you come mend our brokenness? Would you come heal our hearts? May we find hope in you because of your grace. It's in your name we ask.